1: Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
2: How we work in this country is changing. And there are a lot of competing narratives that attempt to explain why. For example, In January, it was announced that America has the lowest unemployment rate since the spring of 1969. But around that time, we were also hearing this.
0: Google's parent company, Alphabet, announcing today it will cut 12,000 positions. The tech giant's biggest ever round of layoffs come during the same week that Microsoft and Amazon also announced job cuts. Zoom announcing it will lay off. 1,300 workers, that's around 15% of its workforce. Media companies are laying off workers too. Even consumer giants like Walmart and Pepsi are reportedly trimming staff. Mark Zuckerberg has called this the year of efficiency. Uh, Sources again telling Bloomberg that thousands of employees
3: could be cut as soon as this week.
2: There are plenty of jobs in this country. The problem is many of those jobs don't pay a livable wage and many leave workers without crucial benefits. This explains why we're seeing high-profile strikes and calls for unionization across industries, from Amazon to public museums to Starbucks to academia.
3: Part-time staff say they haven't received a raise in over four years, and the low wages forces them to take on multiple other jobs.
1: Quite literally, the university does not exist without part-time faculty.
0: Nebretta Hardin and six pro-union co-workers were terminated. Starbucks says the workers broke company policy when they did a press interview in the store. We are here because we know the New York Times is nothing without its guilt. And every last one of us deserves to earn a livable wage and to receive the benefits that we deserve.
2: These collective efforts are part of a struggle to secure a social safety net. But in a country that preaches the importance of making it on your own, how effective can these efforts be? I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Alyssa Court. She's an author of nonfiction books, articles, and poetry, and she also co-founded the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. Much of Court's work centers around the decline of the middle class in America. In her latest book, Bootstrapped, she talks about this as well, but she also zooms out and looks at the history of our country and the pull yourself up by the bootstraps mentality that has defined and divided it for so long. So I invited her onto the show to talk about all that. And we started with the myth at the center of our national story, the American dream.
1: To me, the most toxic elements of the American dream are: is this idea that we have to succeed on our own steam, that if we're going to participate in the economy, if we're going to participate in professional lives, if we're going to be solvent, it's all on our own. And we've made it on our own if we're successful, and if we're struggling financially, it's our fault too. And I think my hope with this book is to say that there's other possibilities for what we could see as the American dream. And even the initial iteration of the American dream in 1931 when it was coined was more expansive than that. James Truslow Adams coined the term and he was a historian and a writer. His view of the American dream then had a lot more of a communitarian feel than it's come to imply. So this is this amazing line from Truslow Adams, the original American dream had always been about quality and spiritual values. He complained Money-making and material improvements were mere extensions of the material basis of existence. This is the person who coined the American Dream who was writing this. Back then, it was closer to the the American Dream that I'm thinking of. Part of what happens with these ideas, the American Dream, the self-made man, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, is they get distorted in this country over decades. So they mean something different, and they— take on a kind of toxicity. And so, yeah, I think there is an American dream out there. It's just not the one that comes to mind first.
2: Well, as a piece of cultural propaganda, the American dream is an incredibly powerful thing. It's been very, very effective. How did it sort of become what it's become? How did it morph into this, you know, do it on your own fantasy that it is today?
1: Well, I sort of look at that over the 19th century and the 20th century. I mean, politically, everyone from Herbert Hoover to Reagan to Donald Trump, to even including Clinton, you know, they were invested in this idea, the end of welfare as we know it. That woman in Chicago was the way that Reagan described so-called welfare queens, which, which turned out to be one person, right? She was like a single huckster that had been then turned into this, yeah, like a uh, whole army of people who were cheating the welfare system, but it was used to privatize, to um, demonize welfare.
2: That was as like the sort of like prop, right, that was ginned up by the Reagan administration. Yes. As a kind of like non-human symbol for entitlement. Yeah. Also, I don't want to beat around the bush here, right? It was used to scare white Americans with the idea that their tax dollars were being given to poor black Americans.
1: Absolutely. It's totally racist. And, you know, and it continued with the Clinton administration. Like, it wasn't, you know, a thousand points of light, like Bush One, where, again, we're supposed to depend on philanthropy and volunteerism rather than a welfare state.
2: So when I think about the American dream, two things spring to mind. The first is this idea that every generation can live a better life than the last one. And that is very obviously not true anymore. There was a book in 2019 by an author named Stephen Brill. I interviewed him for Vox. The book was called Tailspin, and he lays out all the stats to distill this story. And they were really staggering. And I just, if you'll bear with me, I just want to state a few of them. You know, in the last 50 years, a child's chance of earning more than her parents has plummeted from 90 to 50 percent. Earnings by the top 1 percent have almost tripled middle-class wages have basically been frozen for 30, 40 years. Drug addictions and self-inflicted deaths are at a record high. We have one of the highest infant mortality rates in the industrialized world, and on and on and on. And I'm sorry for the laundry list of stats, but I just I think it's important to paint the picture here. Because if the American dream is some kind of baton that each generation passes down to the next one, well, it's been dropped, very clearly.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're, I guess Steve was mentioning Raj Chetty's research on this, on, on mobility and opportunity. He found that someone born in the 1940s had a, like, 92% chance of equaling or bettering their parents' lot. And somebody born in the 1980s, it was, like, 50% or lower. And that made sense to me, you know, not only for this book, but my previous book, Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America, because I felt like this describes this middle precariat, this precarious middle class that I've experienced, people I know have experienced, and it's not being able to live as your parents lived. And there's something fundamentally um, exposing and kind of awakening about that when you're a middle-aged person, let's say, and you you look at your life and you're like, whoa, I I have not— my life is not as comfortable as my parents. It doesn't have the same quality of life. But like in 2021, CEOs were paid 399 times as much as typical workers. They made on average $15.6 million in 2021. That's in the middle of the pandemic, right? So oof, there's a reason for this absence of mobility.
2: I just think this gets at a really important divide, one that's not often even articulated or... Discussed, but it should be you know this this question of the role of luck in our lives and this idea that we achieve success alone. I mean, I don't want to. You go over this in the book. You know, I mean, this is a very predominant view on the right. I think everyone will remember the scandal that was uh, Obama saying that if you've been successful, you didn't get that on your own. If you're successful, somebody gave you some help along the way, and that was a kind of sacrilege for a certain kind of libertarian or a certain kind of conservative. And it's just so much turns on whether or not we're willing to accept the role of luck in our lives.
1: In 2012, this group that united for a fair economy found that over 60% of the Forbes 400 list of Americans were already well off when they began their careers. We have to remember this, that that a lot of the people, if they don't start on third base, they start on second who are considered successes in this country. And I think that was crucial for me when I was writing this to bring that point home.
2: It's just amazing when you really think about it, how we really are not responsible for the most important facts about ourselves. When we're born, to whom we're born, the environment in which we're raised, our genetic gifts and limitations. You know, we don't choose any of these things. And yet they determine so much of our lives and we have this conservative narrative about success that emphasizes hard work and grit and skill and then there's this liberal narrative that emphasizes structural constraints and privilege and it's very obvious to me that neither one of these is entirely correct the binary is the problem and i just want to be super clear about this because i (laughs) i can imagine a lot of people being annoyed if I don't clarify this. And that's okay, even if they're, they're going to be annoyed no matter what. But luck matters a great deal, right? I think it's maybe the most important factor, but talent and hard work also matter. I just happen to believe, and you can tell me what you think, that the moral hazards of overemphasizing hard work, talent, and grit are enormous, you know, because who needs a social safety net, say, if the least among us are just victims of their own laziness and lack of. Of gumption, you could see how that could lead to some really disastrous policies that justify and reinforce a lot of needless suffering.
1: I think you also have to look at gender and race, right? If you have women making eighty-three cents on the dollar still, and women of color making even less than that on the man's dollar, that is not an equal playing field. You know, (laughs) no matter how much gumption you have, if you're a woman, and especially if you're a woman of color, you're statistically going to be paid less. And a white man, right? So I think we need to, like, look at those structural forces, too.
2: Right. It is very hard for people to just pull themselves up by their bootstraps. The world's a little more complicated than that.
1: Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, by the way, started out as just like a joke. It was just an idiom. Try to think of how to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's like, you lie on your back. You're, like, skiing. Like, like.
2: My boots don't even have straps.
1: No, but, but no. they did. And this is the thing. I, I looked into this. They did. And in the um, 19th century, the wealthy had people to help them pull them on. There was a device that was used. There was a machine to help people pull their boots on, too. So, again, the wealthier people could pull their bootstraps on their boots much more easily. But working men all had these boots. And... How do you pull yourself up? You're like, so it was an absurdity that then became this really serious thing. People started to, you know, like, oh yeah, we're going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And there were many mythologies launched by that.
2: And the important point for me about the the whole pull yourself up by the bootstraps myth is that it just, even if there's a nugget of wisdom and some useful message of self-empowerment in it, in the end, what it becomes is a, justification for the persistence of gross inequities instead of calling it a a moral failure of our society it becomes the moral failure of an individual who made choices bad choices and that is the reason he or she or they ended up in their predicament and that is just i think a really crude way to look at the complexity of social life and how people end up where they end up and why some people succeed and why other people fall through the cracks what is the right way for you to to think about self-reliance.
1: I mean, it's something I struggle with myself, you know, and I think on the blue-state liberal side, we, I'll just say we, we have our own form of bootstrapping, of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, and it has more to do with self-actualization. I just think that, like, instead of saying, oh, you haven't worked hard enough, we say, you haven't become yourself fully, which is where this kind of corporate mindfulness comes in and this culture of resilience and grit that's psychological. It's not just about hard work from the outside. It's like doing the work psychologically on the inside so you're well enough so you can excel. And I think that itself is another pressure that a lot of people put on themselves. You know, like, why am I not breathing well. And, <laughs> you know, why, why can I clear my head at work after my boss screams at me? You know, that should be something that I'm able to do. And so that's part of the thing I, I'm trying to critique in this book, too. It's not just about class mobility. It's about internal stability, that somehow that that's our fault or our problem, too, like if we're not psychologically stable.
2: Well, for me, it's tough, you know, because like I do think there's an imperative to deal with the society we have. Not the society we want. And in the society we have, it is probably wise to be as self sufficient as possible. But then again, that mindset is precisely
1: what prevents change. Well, I I don't know if it's wise to be as self sufficient as possible. So in the book, I talk about something I call the art of dependence. And what I mean by that is we should start thinking of dependence as not just codependence, right? Not just a weakling, an emotional weakling, an economic weakling, but Something that takes skill and craft, that it, it takes grace to take care of someone or be taken care of in a way that doesn't harm either party. It takes skill to get you know, welfare payments. It does. I've talked to a lot of people who've tried to get SNAP and welfare Medicaid. You know, it, it takes skill to navigate those systems. It takes skill to live as a disabled person. It takes skill to be a parent. It takes skill to be a child. And so I feel like that reframe, to me, is that's really mindful. Like That's true mindfulness, to be able to be like, oh, the part of my life that's dependent is also conscious and something of a kind of power. There's power independence as well as independence.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I want to try to connect all of this to the political and economic situation we're facing today, which was... Made possible in part by some of these foundational myths you're sort of pulling apart. And I think you and I have a shared interest in finding the spaces for solidarity because that's the only real basis for democratic action. And, you know, the reason I'm always talking about class, class, class is because I do think it has the most potential for solidarity across all of our divides, especially now. Given what's happened to the middle class. And your 2018 book, Squeezed, is very much about what you call the middle precariat. And before I say much more about that, maybe you can define that term for the audience, because obviously it's also part of your new book.
1: So Guy Standing had come up with the term the precariat, I don't know, like maybe a decade ago. And what he meant by that was. The proletariat, right, the famous Karl Marx proletariat, the working class, crossed with precarious. So that's where we get the word precarious. And when I started to report Squeezed, I was seeing a precarious middle class, which, yeah, indeed, in Bootstrapped, I'm, like, advancing some of that. There's some of the similar threads in that way. There are people who are adjunct professors or accountants, graphic artists. You know, there's, like, a world of people, journalists, who are now living job-to-job, highly contingent, fighting to be in unions, fighting for health care, adequate health care, have no long-term security, often work for many different companies, uh, many different colleges, let's say, or many different corporate companies. You know, I was talking to someone who's actually looking at lawyers who are now in this middle precariat situation, which is kind of interesting, who are doing document review, working for multiple different firms. If majority of people don't have job security and don't have economic security, that's a potentially a way that we can connect across class lines.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And I love the term culture workers. Yeah. That you use, right? Again, from adjunct professors to museum workers to graphic artists to journalists.
1: I call them black turtleneck workers, actually. <laughs> I had written about these museum uprisings. It was for the New Republic recently. And um, the New School and the UC system and, you know, my publisher, HarperCollins, they've been on strike either unionizing or doing actions. And I thought that that was something that could thread all these communities together and then thread them together with Amazon workers and Starbucks and REI and all these other nascent unions. It was pretty moving to be on the picket line with one of these union uprisings. This was at the New School and have all the truck drivers honking for art professors, you know, who are tap dancing in performance art kind of garb, and then you had like the fresh direct truck, you know, honking and solid. And I was like, "This is, yeah, every sentimental bone in my body." I was like, "This is what it, what life should be like," but this is how we begin. That was the sentence I kept having in my head.
2: What role did the COVID-19 pandemic play in these strikes? And is remote work fueling a wealth gap? Alyssa and I will discuss after a quick break.
0: Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
2: Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. com slash box i don't know if the pandemic was a tipping point i don't know if the financial crises of late were also Part of a tipping point. I don't know. I mean, you seem to think that the precariat has been radicalized by some of these conditions. I mean, you call it the dystopian social safety net, right? Which is a hell of a way to put it. But more importantly, I think it captures something really important and perverse that was revealed during the pandemic. You know, in the throes of the pandemic, there were all these feel-good stories about nonprofits and citizens stepping up to solve basic human welfare problems that. Shouldn't exist in the first place, but they do because we've organized our society in such a way as to guarantee that they exist, and so people had to step up to fill that hole. But again, maybe there's an opportunity there to change the social safety net.
1: Didn't you find it sort of shocking?
2: Don't find what shocking?
1: When the pandemic started, you're like, "Wow, nobody is nobody's helping us." I mean, you know, in your conscious mind that that's how our country is organized, but it felt like pretty startling. It was hard to not take it personally.
2: Yeah, no, I think it's, you know, it's one of those moments that just reveals a truth that's always there, but easy to ignore when times are normal, whatever that means. But it definitely exposed some of these, you know, what was the term people were using?
1: Frontline, essential.
2: That whole period sort of revealed who actually is important in our society, like like the people that actually perform the services and the care and the duties that make life possible, that really keep this thing rolling. And those were the people in the professions that felt the most pain in that moment. And many of the people who, to borrow a term from David Graber, do bullshit jobs, you know, were much less impacted <laughs> by the pandemic. And there was just a, a kind of core injustice in that.
1: Yeah, I almost... Sometimes I started to see remote work as a way to pay, kind of satiate or opiate the upper middle precariat, right? Like not the middle middle precariat, but people who could, like us, have quasi-virtual jobs. And this was going to keep us quiet. We're going to be in our state of quietism in our homes, Zooming with our colleagues. And maybe this would continue as it has for many years, and that would in some way placate not wildly well-paid middle-class workers. You know what I mean? Now they get to work at home, they get more flexible hours. So you're not actually paying them more, giving them more job security, but you're letting them have these benefits that they would had to fight for before. It reminds me of this line from Barbara Ehrenreich. She wrote that Americans can't actually afford the rich, which I, I love that. They drive up costs for everyone and require huge amounts of cash to sustain their lifestyles. So to me, that's part of what we're talking about too.
2: I mean, it's, it's an insight that goes at least as far back as Aristotle, right? But like, you can have rich people and you can have poor people, but you absolutely have to have a sustainable, robust middle-class for your society to be viable in the long-term. And if you get to a point where you just have very, very rich people and everyone else, that's a problem and that's not sustainable and we seem to be the history of the last half century is the history of inching more and more to that reality
1: this is part of my hope with my book and the polemical part of my book is that if you if you puncture every ceo who says i did it myself including say Michael Bloomberg. Do you remember? Oh, yeah. He was like, I did this myself. And it was great because Bernie Sanders was like, I think your workers would say differently, (laughs) you know, just to constantly remind these people who are making so much more than their workers, just the basic fact that they did not do it themselves. If you have 20,000, 80,000 workers, if you have five workers, you haven't done it yourself, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. There's a sympathetic way to understand why people who have benefited from a lot of luck and a lot of privilege prefer to tell a different story. You know, I mean, the stories we tell about ourselves are never complete. And even if you're enormously privileged, if you've accomplished a lot, you've probably also worked pretty hard. And that's easy to remember and focus on. You know, you don't think about that job you got thanks to a, a friend or family connection. You don't think about the second chances you got when you were younger, when you screwed up. I mean, we're just, we're just not wired to think of ourselves that way. And that's an impediment to throwing off this mindset.
1: But I also think that's part of where the art of dependence comes in. Instead of mindfulness, let's encourage or have this be our mindfulness, where we encourage ourselves to say to ourselves, what's helped me get here? I've been really moved when I see people who credit their caregivers. You know, award speeches where women will say, yeah, I would like to dedicate this to Blank, my caregiver, and I just think that that kind of thing is very crucial. These are teeny, teeny, but important ways that we can show our interdependence and our dependence on others publicly. So I've I've sort of tried to start doing this, like acknowledging the forces that have made me who I am, to myself too, like almost as a mantra.
2: To succeed, you need lots of luck and some help from other people. We can't legislate luck, but how can we help workers? That's coming up after one more quick break.
0: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life.
2: an economist from Cornell years ago. His name was Robert Frank. And he told me something that I have never been able to forget. He pointed out that there was a study that found that kids from lower income families who scored in the top quartile on math test in the eighth grade were less likely to graduate from college than students who scored in the bottom quartile in math in the eighth grade but happened to be born into homes in which their parents were in the top third of income distribution and in some ways that's kind of the whole damn story of how wealth and privilege works in this country
1: no exactly so what can we do
2: well i don't know i mean you seem hopeful right i mean what we can do is freaking organize i guess right and if your reporting is to be believed and i obviously i think it is then there is reason to hope right that there is some yeah you know look we there's a lot of pain to go around right now and a lot of people are hurting and as horrendous as the last several years have been there is a political opportunity in that pain and suffering right for people to organize and and realize the the interest that they share with other people and and to fight for better conditions fight for a better life fight for a better social Reality, right? I mean, you feel hopeful.
1: I do feel hopeful, but I don't fully know why, but I do. Um, a lot of the mutualism piece of it, not just the mutual aid, but you know, when I, I looked into what Darwin had written about mutualism, and I realized that he uses this phrase, mutual sympathy. And he didn't just believe in survival of the fittest, he believed in the relationships of like the ants and the ant farm and the bugs that are on the animal's back and the mistletoe, which is like, a, I think, a parasite and, you know, the plants it's surrounding and the milkweed and the monarch. It's natural for humans. It's natural for plants. It's natural for animals for us to be mutual. And so there's like a evo or biological rationale behind some of the things that I'm arguing for. Well,
2: I mean, that's why I think you're you're right in the book to focus so much on some of these foundational myths. And I know it can... It can be a little abstract to talk about some of these things, but, you know, ideas have consequences. And some of these ideas have taken root in our culture, and they become justifications for a lot of inequities. And we internalize some of these myths, and we become instruments of their reproduction.
1: Ooh, I like that. You just That was really good, Sean. <laughs> Instruments of their reproduction. No, but it's totally good.
2: Yeah. Maybe once every episode, I've, you know, some random nugget comes out. But um, you know what I mean? Like that's why it's important to try to articulate them and try to connect them, right? Because there is a straight line from some of these myths about, you know, we do it on our own. We're all by ourselves. We're not actually, in fact, interdependent, hopelessly so, actually. And it's, it's important to make that connection because I think it's necessary to challenge and dismantle and overturn some of these stories if we're going to create a world that is better and more fair for everyone. Yeah. Jesus, I feel like I'm preaching now.
1: <laughs> Did you do like academic? Were you a graduate in graduate school and all that?
2: I defended my dissertation in, in 2014 and I, I taught for for a couple years after that and doing some writing on the side and then I ended up becoming a journalist and not an academic, obviously.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, this is part of it, right? Like, I felt like I couldn't afford to finish graduate school because I was adjuncting and it was crazy. I, was ad- I mean, I think part of what you see in these books is this kind of embodied knowledge of some of those experiences, because I, I mean, which you clearly have too, where you really want to do right by these students and then you're hustling from gig to gig and what that does to people's bodies too, not just their minds or their politics.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, when I was adjuncting, I, I had students who were baristas that were making more money yeah. than I was. And I wanted to get married and, and, and have a family. And it wasn't, um, that was a profession that I really loved. I really loved teaching and I really loved working with students. And I worked really hard to have an opportunity to do that. And it simply wasn't viable in the end. I had to walk away because there was just no future for me there. There was no security for me there and i'm really lucky in lots of ways and i've used that word very deliberately i mean (laughs) it is more luck than anything else that i am here right now having this conversation with you lots of people i know lots of my colleagues from from my academic days could do this there are lots of smart talented people who weren't so lucky who didn't get plucked in the way i did and i'm grateful for that but i owe an enormous debt as well so a lot of this stuff does hit home for me and i'm very If it isn't clear, I'm really sympathetic to your project here.
1: Oh, thank you so much. But I mean, I'm listening to you. See, I can't help but start reporting. (laughs) And I'm I'm listening to you and I'm thinking what you're good at is not just this, but it's a you're adaptive. And not everyone is. And that's just that's something outside of talent and it's outside of luck. It's like a third thing. How to take whatever skills you have and put into a different framework and to be have that level of flexibility
2: yeah i'm not i'm not gonna be falsely modest i do think i have some talent and that has helped me get here but also i was broke when i was teaching and i was only able to start writing because my wife was doing well and she was able to help support me and if she wasn't there if i didn't have that help i wouldn't be doing i don't know what would have happened to me but i wouldn't have becoming a freelancer was a luxury i would not have been able to afford without the help I was getting from my family, from my partner at that time. And I try not to forget that. Some people don't have that.
1: And both my books, I sort of consider them radical self-help in the sense that they're not. It's self-help to realize the structural issues at hand and also to realize what has helped you. That's a deep self-help, the others that have helped you, because it frees you of both self-blame and uh, arrogance.
2: Yeah, right. I mean, I can, I can take pride in the work that I've done and also be enormously grateful <laughs> for the help I receive. And this is why I really like the end of your book, you know, because you talk about one of the things that needs to change is that we just, we have to get past this discomfort with, with talking about money and privilege because that discomfort and the silence it breeds is a barrier to change. You know, poor people in our Country are made to feel shameful for their condition, and rich people are often too prideful to admit that they had help. And all of that undercuts the sort of cross cutting solidarity we really need to be politically effective.
1: It also separates people. Yes. So it separates people, not just politically, but psychologically. I think it breeds dishonesty. You know, I try personally to tell people where I'm at with, you know, economically. I'm not sure I'm always great at it, but. I think it brings people, I mean, in my last book, Squeezed, it was like being able to be like, oh, I really have going to have trouble affording daycare at this time by myself could then bring two families together. And again, I, I think that was another thing that people saw during the pandemic where you had a lot of remote schooling and people pulling resources and then that forced a kind of honesty, like who needed to pull resources and who didn't, right? But I think that's positive. Those parts are positive and the secrecy around economic stability and instability. I mean, we have like the right on both sides, what's allowed us to be who we are and then what's held us back.
2: Well, I thought the group that you report on in the end of the book, the patriotic millionaires, I had never heard of <laughs> of these people before, but I think it's pretty cool. And yeah, you should just say what they are.
1: Yeah, I'd love to. So the patriotic millionaires, it's part of a radical philanthropy, I'd say. It's not just them. There's a place called Solidaire, and there's something called Resource Generation, and there's there's others. But they want others to know the tax write-offs they get, how the preferential treatment that wealthy people and people with estates get in our, our tax system. And they also want to change tax law more than just to give away their money because philanthropy, well... It's often commendable. It often also does go to pet causes. So you have extremely wealthy people giving to their children's private school <laughs> or to their, their local park, which is fine, but that doesn't exactly help majority of people or even causes that are really in need of resources. So that's the Patriotic Millionaires, and one of them, Chuck Collins, is somebody that I came across through my work at EHRP, and he gave away his fortune as a young man.
2: This is the guy that the heir to the Oscar Mayer Wiener fortune or the hot dog thing. Whatever.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And has lived this whole life of as a kind of class trader who has trying to popularize and democratize that kind of exposure of privilege and and the necessity of better tax law. So I thought that was like really great. I've talked to a lot of those folks.
2: Well, he's a citizen in the truest and best sense of the word.
1: I mean, some of them post their tax forms, their own tax forms, online, which I just thought was like, "Whoa, that is literally putting your money where your yeah, mouth is." That's
2: pretty radical. I don't, I don't think I'm going to do that uh, t- tonight.
1: No, but. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but that's that's a kind of transparency that is helpful, right? Because then, again, when you're a precarious person who's indulging in self-blame about, you know, why you're not able to buy your kids better presents at Christmas, you can see how much more you're taxed in relation to your income than somebody like that guy.
2: Yeah. Well, a recurring theme on this show, it seems, in, in recent months has been the power of stories one way or the other and how fidelity to bad ones can lead to a lot of misery and that understanding seems to undergird so much of your work and and this book in particular and that's what i dig most about it apart from all the great reporting you've done so i commend you for that
1: oh thanks a lot yeah sean this is awesome i've really enjoyed this conversation
2: the book is bootstrapped liberating ourselves from the american dream Alyssa court this was a pleasure Patrick Boyd engineered this episode, Alex Overington wrote our theme music, and A.M. Hall is the boss. As always, let us know what you think about this one. You can send us an email at thegrayarea@box.com, and if you appreciated this episode, please share it with your friends on all the socials. New episodes of The Gray Area drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Please listen and subscribe.